Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 299 for November 21st, 2022. And I am so super excited today. I know it's not the 300th episode yet, but that is next week. We are on the penultimate episode for the countdown to 300. But I've got all sorts of fun things to share with you today. Some really great, interesting news articles and lots of other stuff. Uh, so one of the main reasons I'm excited to be perfectly honest is I just finished all the final drafts for the fifth edition of the book. Oh my God, this was so much more effort than I remember it being. I've done this five times now. Uh, the first one, of course, was writing the thing completely originally, but I've updated it four times. And, it, you know, every, you know, 18 to 24 months I do it because all the screenshots get old. I mean you know, this stuff changes constantly and, you know, Microsoft and Google and Apple keep moving stuff around <laughs> and they add more features, of course, which is, you know, usually a good thing, not always. And so since the book has so many screenshots, you know, that alone gets stale quickly and I've got to redo it. But since I've retired almost exactly two years ago, uh, two years ago, last month, I've just learned a lot more. I've, you know, kind of refined my thinking on these things. I've, I've met more people, learned more things, found more products. Things have changed. Uh, and so I try to pack as much of that as possible into this book. It's, it's unbelievable how much stuff that I have added uh, in this new version of the book. The current version, the one that's out now, the fourth edition, is like 400 pages long. The new one's going to have at least 30 more pages than that, which actually seems low because I think I've added a lot more. I added a whole new chapter, though some of that came from other chapters. So I did split one chapter up and then kind of expand it basically is what happened there. But I've added like 32 more tips and I've actually deleted some, some that didn't make sense anymore. I've combined some and moved things around. I, I probably did split a couple of them. But yeah, there were 170 tips in the current edition and the new one's going to have, I think, 202. But here's the kicker. I mean, so, so this version... I have to support four different versions of the operating systems. There's Windows 10 and Windows 11, both of which are very popular. There's a lot of them out there, so I got to cover both of them. And then Mac OS, which is free and easy to update, just came out with a big update that changed a lot of things. Uh, that's Ventura. And so there's Monterey and Ventura. So I went from 161 figures in the fourth edition to 244 images, most of which are screenshots in this edition. So anyway, it was... A Herculean effort and took a lot of time, uh, but my part is mostly done at this point. So it is now off to production. I am told that that will take about four to five weeks to get published. Fingers crossed. If that happens, it will be out before Christmas. Uh, that's that's pushing it. I'm not I'm not going to promise that. However, it should be orderable even prior to that. Uh, so somewhere in the middle of the process, it will actually pop up on Amazon and A-Press and other places as orderable, pre-orderable. So obviously, as soon as I know that that's the case, I will let you know. The new cover art is done. I love it. It includes my logo. So now it's got the great yellow and orange kind of look to it with the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon logo, just like the podcast art. So all my branding will now be synchronized and unified once again, and hopefully will not change going forward. Anyway, I'll give you more info as it happens. Certainly once it releases, I'll have lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, but that is one of the reasons I am super excited. So a couple quick things to catch you up. I'd mentioned a couple weeks ago about the QR code scams and how, you know, when you sign up for these things, and you get the quote unquote free QR codes, then, you know, 14 days later, they expire. And all of a sudden, you now have to pay to use those QR codes. If you missed that episode or missed the blog article, check that out for sure. But sure enough, uh, when I created a QR code for that article to test this theory, 
I had 14 days, I assumed, before something would go awry. And sure enough, after 14 days, that QR code that I created no longer works. If you scan that code or go to the link that, that code represents, you'll get this weird web page that says, hey, thanks for scanning, but uh, notice the QR code campaign has been disabled for some reason. Your QR code reader scanner is working fine. So that's what people would see if they scan that code. When I go to my account and log in, uh, what I see is your 14 day trial has ended to continue using QR code generator pro upgrade your account. In other words, we are holding your QR codes for ransom. That is just so super slimy. But anyway, I want to close the loop on that because I didn't know for sure when these things are going to expire because they really were not clear uh, when you were doing this, that it was going to in 14 days, it was going to not work anymore. So I was also curious as to what would actually happen when they expired. And well, now, you know. I've updated that blog article, by the way, with that information. So also there are two other things that are in the news all over the place that I'm probably not going to talk about here today and probably won't unless they somehow directly involve security and privacy. And that is the implosion of Twitter and this whole FTX, Bitcoin, Binance, whatever fiasco. I've talked about cryptocurrency before. I've talked about Twitter a little bit before. All of that is sensational news that at least so far, hasn't impacted security and privacy directly, though they very much could. For instance, if these companies, either of them completely goes out of business and fire sales are their customer data or hackers get in and steal all that data because no one's minding the shop, you know, that could be bad and it could definitely happen. Let's hope it doesn't. But you know, when that kind of stuff rolls around, then we'll probably be talking about it here on the new show. However, I am going to talk a little bit about the Twitter well, rival, and that, that's not the best use of that word, called Mastodon, because I was asked a Dear Carrie question about that. So I will cover that when we get to uh, this week's listener question. But I've got lots of news stories to cover. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a, a warning from the U.S. Post Office about not using the big blue mailboxes as much during the holidays, especially for gifts and things like that. Also, Google has been ordered to pay almost $400 million in privacy fines to 40 states that sued them over uh, secretly tracking their users' locations. The massive MetaBank data leak in Australia is getting lots of headlines. They are refusing to pay the ransom payment, and hackers are starting to leak that data. TransUnion, one of the big three credit bureaus here in the United States, or probably globally, has had a data breach. And while we're not really sure what the extent of that is, I want to talk about that a little bit. Once again, the FBI director here in the U.S. says that TikTok is a national security threat. and He's extremely concerned. I've got a few things to say about that. There's a Lenovo driver problem that is posing security risks for up to 25 different laptop models. If you've got one of those, you're going to want to pay attention. The Washington Post has a story about a mysterious company with government ties that looks like it's trying to get into the certificate authority business. And that will be an interesting opportunity to talk about how certificate authorities work and how that might be exploited. The British government is scanning all internet devices hosted in the UK looking for vulnerabilities. And I've got a couple stories about Apple, which will be relevant when we talk about my best and worst gift guides for 2022. With Thanksgiving coming up here in the United States and Black Friday coming up, this is kind of the traditional holiday shopping season. And uh, so I always try to update and put out my best and worst gift guide for the year about this time. And for the tip of the week, I will go over some of my favorite and least favorite gift ideas for the holidays. 
And then, of course, I will get to my listener question for the week. So lots to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, I've got several news articles for you this week. I tried to keep them really short because we've got a lot we've got a lot to talk about today. And I'm probably gonna have lots of comments on some of these. So I've tried to keep the articles a little bit shorter. All right, first up, this is from Lifehacker. And this is a warning from the United States Postal Service. And they say, whether you're sending holiday cards or gifts or just mailing your monthly rent check, you may want to avoid using those large blue collection boxes, at least for the next few months, the US Postal Service officials have advised. Not only have reports of mail fraud and theft been on the rise year-round, the crimes tend to peak during the holiday season, and those blue mailboxes are becoming more frequent targets. According to USPS officials, quote, groups of criminals across the country are using the internet and social media to coordinate strategic targeting of post office collection boxes, unquote. If you do opt to use the blue boxes, be sure to do so before the last collection of the day so your mail isn't sitting there overnight. The time should be listed on the front of the box. This is especially true on Saturday as the mail would be in there overnight plus all of Sunday. In addition to avoiding the blue collection boxes, there are a few other tips from experts at the USPS to help ensure your mail ends up in the right hands. First, hand it off directly to your postal carrier. Then it's instantly in the system. In other words, as if you catch them roaming your neighborhood and putting stuff in your mailbox, if you can catch them right then, hand it to them, that's ideal. Second, take it directly to the post office. That's your kind of your next best thing, right? Hand it to a person there. Though, of course, now you're probably going to face some lines and you've got to go during regular, you know, office hours. Third, never send cash in the mail. If it's stolen, consider it gone. Four, if you expect to receive something of value in the mail, let the sender know when and if you've received it. Similarly, if you're sending someone something valuable, you might have to partially ruin the surprise and let them know that a package is on the way. And finally, sign up for USPS informed delivery so you know when your mail is arriving. I've mentioned this before. It's really kind of cool. It's also kind of creepy <laughs> because what you'll find out when you do this is that the post office is scanning every single piece of mail that they send to you, meaning that you can, if you sign up for the service and log into your account, you can actually have it send you a daily email that will show you a picture of everything that they're planning to put in your mailbox that day, which I actually find really handy, especially for packages and things like that. But it's also kind of good to know if something is not there when you go in your mailbox, like, hey, something's missing. But of course, <laughs> that also means that you now know that the United States Postal Service has a copy or a scanned image of every piece of mail that you've received. All right, let's move on. This is from the Hacker News. Internet giant Google has agreed to pay a record $391.5 million to settle with 40 states and the U.S. over charges the company misled users about the collection of personal location data. And this is a quote from Oregon Attorney General uh, Ellen Rosenblum. And Ellen says, quote, Google misled its users into thinking they had turned off location tracking in their account settings when, in fact, Google had continued to collect their location information. For years, Google has prioritized profit over their users' privacy. They have been crafty and deceptive, unquote. The investigation was sparked by a 2018 report from the Associated Press that revealed Google was continuing to track users' locations on Android and iOS, even when they turned off location history in their account settings, effectively undermining the privacy controls. And I remember we were talking about that on the podcast when that came out. 
Rosenblum said the location data gathered by Google is combined with other personal and behavioral information it collects to flesh out detailed user profiles for purposes of ad targeting, adding even a limited amount of location data can expose a person's identity and routines and that it can be used to infer personal details. As part of the privacy settlement, Google is required to show additional information to users upon either enabling or disabling a location-related setting, avoid hiding key information about location tracking, and offer specifics about the types of location data collected. It goes on for a bit more, but there's a little bit more I want to quote here. For the third quarter ending September 30th, 2022, Google reported total revenues of $69.09 billion and a net income of $13.9 billion. Overall revenue from advertising stood at $54.48 billion for the three-month time period. So I included that so you could see the relative size. So basically $0.4 billion was what they just agreed to pay when they made, what, $55 billion that quarter? So while that amount may sound like a lot of money, it is just a drop in the bucket and it's just... It's the cost of doing business to Google. This was a slap on the wrist. And then one final quote from Rosenblum. Quote, until we have comprehensive privacy laws, companies will continue to compile large amounts of our personal data for marketing purposes with few controls, unquote. All right, next up, this is from CPO Magazine, and this is about the MetaBank data leak and ransomware situation. The recent breach of MetaBank has resulted in the leak of millions of health data records to the dark web as the company opted to ignore demands for ransom payments. About 9.7 million records were stolen, but thus far only a small fraction have been published by the criminals. Though the data of 9.7 million current and former customers was stolen, it is not entirely clear how detailed the average record was. It is known that some records included Medicare numbers, passport numbers, and visa details, and about half a million health claims were taken. However, some records may have been limited to basic contact information, such as home and email addresses and phone numbers. Medibank CEO David Kochar, K-O-C-Z-K-A-R, I'm going to say Kochar, said that the company believed making ransom payments would only offer a quote-unquote limited chance of keeping the health data of, of customers off the dark web and that the payments would encourage attackers to persist in their criminal enterprises. MetaBank has warned its customers that this means their health data may be made available to anyone via the dark web and that the data may be used by criminals to contact them with scam attempts. The hackers had initially threatened to be selective in their release of health data if the ransom payments were not made, and they appear to be keeping that promise. Security researchers note that the early trickle of records includes high-profile politicians, as well as records of seemingly more obscure victims that are coded with a diagnosis of drug or alcohol addiction. The group seems to think that a trickle of some of the most potentially embarrassing or sensitive information will pressure MetaBank into reconsidering its position on ransom payments. Its next big threat is to drop health data of patients that have had abortions. The group also claims that it stole encrypted credit card numbers in the raid and will leak them along with the keys for decrypting them. MetaBank disputes this, saying that it sees no evidence of financial information being accessed. The attackers have already moved to selling access to the records piecemeal, asking for $1 for access to one record. MetaBank's decision to not pay up may become the law of the land, as the Department of Home Affairs is now floating the possibility of outlawing ransom payments to curb the rising problem. Minister Claire O'Neill expressed support for MetaBank's decision and said that the department would be looking at a ban as a long-term possibility. 
There's no commitment at this point beyond quote unquote having a look. But if Australia made this move, it would be virtually alone among its five eyes intelligence partners. Certain U.S. states have forbidden government agencies from making payments, but the country as a whole has appeared to commit to allowing private sector ransom payments in the interest of giving hard-pressed businesses that are caught unprepared a shot at avoiding financial ruin. So this is an interesting case. Obviously, I feel sorry for anybody at Metabank. Uh, uh, you know, another data breach, and this is potentially some very personal information that could be leaked. And it sounds like Metabank is not going to pay the ransom, meaning that that data is very likely to show up on the dark web, where it will certainly be bought and used uh, in scam attempts and maybe even extortion attempts. The interesting part of this article to me is this whole notion of outlawing ransom payments. And I've discussed this before uh, on the show, but uh, I understand the idea and the thinking, you know, if it's illegal to pay these ransoms, then shouldn't that put this whole ransomware concept like out of business? Like, you know, if you can't get money, then what's the point? But I think what would more likely happen is it would just go underground. These companies, even though there are laws in some, you know, states and countries that require disclosure of data breaches, I would say it's quite possible that some of these companies would try to pay the ransom before that time hits so that they could get that data back. And, you know, they might even be able to interpret that as saying, well, we got the data back. So there was no breach. So we don't have to disclose anything. And also, I, you know, like kind of like this article alludes to when some companies get hit by this, if they can't get their data back, and it's not just about that data being released and the embarrassment and, and, and identity theft and things like that. If, if their data is tied up, you know, encrypted and they don't have backups, that would put a lot of companies directly out of business. So I think, you know, for a government to come in and say, no, it's illegal for you to pay a ransom. Well, I understand the idea behind that. I, I don't think that's the solution here. But this is a really thorny problem that, you know, and I am not a policy expert on this. So I'm just kind of giving you my opinion. And, it, you know, just something to be thinking about. All right. Another data breach in the news. This is from uh, BGR. TransUnion has confirmed to the Massachusetts Attorney General that it recently suffered a data breach, according to the legal blog J.D. Supra. TransUnion, one of the three top consumer credit reporting agencies in the U.S., says names, social security numbers, financial account numbers, and even driver's license numbers were compromised in the breach. The agency has been sending out letters to the affected parties to let them know about the breach and how to protect themselves. J.D. Supra says there aren't many details available about the extent of the breach. We still do not know how much data was leaked or how many people were affected. What we do know is that TransUnion collects data on more than 1 billion consumers in more than 30 countries around the world. TransUnion proudly claims that it has, quote, files profiling nearly every credit active consumer in the United States, unquote. According to the report TransUnion filed, the company began to review affected files after discovering the data breach. When and if we learn more about the data breach, including how many consumers were affected, we will be sure to update this article. So, of course, this is reminiscent of the Equifax breach from several years back. It is still early days. We don't know what the extent this is going to be. Back in the Equifax days, there was definitely malfeasance involved, even though I I don't think anybody went to jail for it, except for one executive who went to jail because they tried to trade stock before the news hit the hit the news services and would affect the stock price. But this is a weird case of these are companies where we are not the customers. We are absolutely the product. And you might be saying, well, how did I ever agree to this? How did, how did I ever agree to these companies gathering and sharing all of my very personal financial information and other details? Well, 
if you look at the fine print and probably any loan or credit card or bank account that you've ever opened, and you might have a hard time finding that fine print, I'm sure somewhere in there is a release of information to these credit bureaus uh, because the banks rely on these guys. All, anybody who's going to offer credit to someone, you know, loans or open accounts uh, or whatever, or your utility companies, that, that gets reported on your credit report as well. There's this big incestuous relationship between all these companies and part of them offering these services is also offering that data up to these credit bureaus. So you really don't have a choice. I mean, it's not like you can take your business elsewhere. <laughs> so one thing you can do, however, and I recommend that everybody do this, uh, unless for some reason you're the kind of person who is constantly creating new lines of credit for yourself, is to freeze your credit. Here in the United States, that is now free. Once you freeze it, it's frozen forever until you unfreeze it. You can now very easily through just going through a web page, you know, you can temporarily thaw your account if you need someone to do a credit check on you for some reason, and it will automatically freeze again when you're done. I've got blogs on this on my website. It's also covered in my book. Now, of course, that wouldn't help you in this case. This, in this case, your data has actually been you know, taken or stolen. We can only hope that the data that was stolen was was encrypted and therefore won't be of much use to the people who stole it. But uh, I don't know. We'll, 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 I guess we'll find out more as this story unfolds. All right. Next up, this is from USA Today, and this is about TikTok. FBI Director Christopher Wray told Congress this week, and this is last week, that he is, quote unquote, extremely concerned Beijing could weaponize data collected through TikTok the popular app owned by Chinese company ByteDance. During a House Homeland Security Committee hearing on worldwide threats Tuesday, and this was again last week, Ray flagged the risk that the Chinese government could harness the video sharing app to influence users or control their devices. Ray said application programming interfaces, or APIs, that ByteDance embeds in the short-form video hosting are a national security concern because Beijing could use them to, quote, control data collection of millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, which can be used for influence operations. China's fast hacking program is the world's largest, and they have stolen more of Americans' personal and business data than every other nation combined, unquote. Ray said APIs in TikTok could be yoked to control software on millions of devices, meaning the Chinese government could compromise personal devices owned by Americans. All right, the article goes on. Um couple things. First of all, sure, I <laughs> this probably is a national security risk, but why are they not saying the exact same things about Facebook and Google? I am sure their apps are probably just as much up in your business as TikTok is. The only difference is that that data is not going to China. It's going to companies in the United States. Do we trust them more somehow? Maybe it's because they're here and the FBI could potentially have direct access to them if they were to go rogue. Put another way, I would completely understand how any other country on the planet would say the exact same things that Christopher Ray is saying about TikTok, except about Facebook and Google and, you know, and other apps as well. But those would be the big ones. Realize, of course, that Google owns way more than just, you know, the Google search engine and the Chrome browser. They also own Waze. They own Android outright and many, many, many other Google apps, some which don't have Google right in the name like Waze. And of course, here's the other problem, right? All these companies are gathering tons of information. Even if that company itself doesn't abuse that data, that data is being sold, you know, hopefully in anonymous and aggregated ways to third parties and other data brokers, but it exists. I would have to believe that every foreign government with the capability to do so is trying to hack those companies to get at that data. And by the way, when Christopher Ray said that, you know, 
China has stolen more information than every other nation combined. I'd like to see how that actually breaks down and what he means by that. Because I am sure that the NSA and probably the FBI and several other intelligence agencies have been stealing data from all around the world for a long time. And I would venture to guess that we are pretty darn good at it. All right, if you own a Lenovo laptop, listen up. This is from Ars Technica. More than two dozen Lenovo notebook models are vulnerable to malicious hacks that disable the UEFI secure boot process and then run unsigned UEFI apps or load bootloaders that permanently backdoor a device, researchers warned on Wednesday. And we'll talk about what UEFI here is in just a second. At the same time that researchers from security firm ESET disclosed the vulnerabilities, the notebook maker released security updates for 25 models, including ThinkPads, Yoga Slims, and IdeaPads. Vulnerabilities that undermine the UEFI secure boot can be serious because they make it possible for attackers to install malicious firmware that survives multiple operating system reinstallations. Short for Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI is the software that bridges a computer's device firmware with its operating system. As the first piece of code to run when virtually any modern machine is turned on, it's the first link in the security chain. Because the UEFI resides in a flash chip on the motherboard, infections are difficult to detect and remove. Typical measures such as wiping the hard drive and reinstalling the operating system have no meaningful impact because the UEFI infection will simply reinfect the computer afterward. ESET said the vulnerabilities, quote, allow disabling UEFI secure boot or restoring factory default secure boot databases, including DBX, all simply from an operating system, unquote. Secure Boot uses databases to allow and deny mechanisms. The DBX database in particular stores cryptographic hashes of denied keys. Disabling and restoring default values in the database makes it possible for an attacker to remove restrictions that would normally be in place. Disabling the UEFI Secure Boot frees attackers to execute malicious UEFI apps, something that's not normally possible because Secure Boot requires UEFI apps to be cryptographically signed. Restoring the factory default DBX, meanwhile, allows attackers to load vulnerable bootloaders. In August, researchers from the security firm Eclipsium identified three prominent software drivers that could be used to bypass Secure Boot when an attacker who has elevated privileges, meaning administrator on Windows or root on Linux. The vulnerabilities are the result of Lenovo mistakenly shipping notebooks with drivers that had been intended for use only during the manufacturing process. People using any of the vulnerable models should install patches as soon as practical. So one of the first things I want to talk about with this article is this whole notion of UEFI. And if you've heard of BIOS, this is kind of the new version of BIOS. And if you haven't heard of BIOS or UEFI, uh, your computer when it boots has this kind of built-in low-level burned into chips set of software that we call firmware. And if you think about it, there's software and hardware. So firmware is kind of between soft and hard, which metaphorically makes sense in this case. So the very first thing that your computer does when it boots up, and you might, if you're on a Windows machine, you might have noticed this. Uh, you might have seen a flash screen that shows, you know, something about the BIOS or the motherboard. That is the UEFI uh, kicking in, and it decides what it's going to boot for its operating system. And it has this notion of a secure boot thing built in, which, you know, looks at the secure enclaves or the TPM chips, all this security stuff. And the whole point is to try to prevent malicious software from loading, it's particularly in the operating system. So this article, and it, it's longer if you want to read the whole thing, there's, of course, a link in the show notes 
talks about this particular vulnerability and has the CVE numbers if you want to look those up. But at the end of the day, if you've got a Lenovo laptop, including some of the ones I mentioned, you should be looking for software updates and get those installed as soon as possible. All right, now it's time for a little bit of a longer article. This is from the Washington Post, and this is going to bring up the concept of certificate authorities and how we do authentication uh, on the web. So let me read this article, and then I'll talk a little bit more about that. An offshore company that is trusted by the major web browsers and other tech companies to vouch for the legitimacy of websites has connections to contractors for U.S. intelligence agencies and law enforcement, according to security researchers, documents, and interviews. Google's Chrome, uh, Apple's Safari, nonprofit Firefox, and others, other browsers, allow the company TrustCore Systems to act as what's known as a root certificate authority, a powerful spot in the Internet's infrastructure that guarantees websites are not fake, guiding users to them seamlessly. The company's Panamanian registration records shows that it has the identical slate of officers, agents, and partners as a spyware maker identified this year as an affiliate of Arizona-based Packet Forensics, which public contracting records and company documents show has sold communication interception services to the U.S. government agencies for more than a decade. One of those Trust Core, and that's T-R-U-S-T-C-O-R, TrustCore Partners has the same name as the holding company managed by Raymond Solino, who is quoted in a 2010 Wired article as a spokesman for Packet Forensics. Solino also serviced in 2021 as a contact for another company, Global Resource Systems, that caused speculation in the tech world when it briefly activated and ran more than 100 million previously dormant IP addresses assigned decades earlier to the Pentagon. The Pentagon reclaimed the digital territory months later, and it remains unclear what the brief transfer was about. But researchers said the activation of those IP addresses could have given the military access to a huge amount of Internet traffic without revealing that the government was receiving it. The Pentagon did not respond to a request for comment on TrustCore. After the story's publication, a TrustCore executive said the company had not cooperated with any government information requests or assisted with a third party's monitoring of its customers on behalf of others. Mozilla demanded more detailed answers and said it might remove TrustCore's authority. And I'll talk more about that when we're done. TrustCore's products include an email service that claims to be end-to-end encrypted, though experts consulted by the Washington Post said they found evidence to undermine that claim. A text version of the email service also included spyware developed by a Panamanian company related to packet forensics, researchers said. Google later banned all software containing that spyware code from its app store. A person familiar with Packet Forensics work confirmed that it had used TrustCore's certificate process and its email service MessageSafe, that's M-S-G-S-A-F-E, to intercept communications and help the U.S. government catch suspected terrorists. The latest discovery shows how the technological and business complexity of the Internet's inner workings can be leveraged to an extent that is rarely revealed, which is why I'm reading this article right now. Concerns about root certificate authorities, though, have come up before. In 2019, a security company controlled by the government of the United Arab Emirates that had been known as Dark Matter applied to be upgraded to top-level root authority from intermediate authority with less independence. That followed revelations about Dark Matter hacking dissidents and even some Americans. Mozilla denied it root power. In 2015, Google withdrew the root authority of the China Internet Network Information Center, or CNNIC, after it allowed an intermediate authority to issue fake certificates for Google sites. 
Trustcore has issued more than 10,000 certificates, many of them for sites hosted with a dynamic domain name service provider called NoIP, the researchers said. That service allows websites to be hosted with constantly changing internet protocol addresses. Because root authority is so powerful, Trustcore can give others the right to issue certificates. Certificates for websites are publicly viewable so that bad ones should be exposed sooner or later. There have been no reports so far that Trustcore certificates have been used inappropriately, for example, by vouching for imposter websites. The researchers speculated that the system is only used against high-value targets within short windows of time. The person familiar with packet forensics operations agreed and said that that is in fact how it had been used. All right, this article goes on much, much longer, uh, but I picked out a few more paragraphs here. Mozilla currently recognizes 169 root certificate authorities, including three from TrustCore. The case gives new focus to problems with that system in which critical tech companies outsource their trust to third parties with their own agendas. After publication of the story, Mozilla gave TrustCore two weeks to respond to a series of questions. And I don't think the article said what those questions are, but I think we can infer certainly that it's about trying to get to the bottom of whether or not this company can be trusted as a root certificate authority. Okay, so what is a certificate authority, let alone a root certificate authority? Uh, so certificate authority is usually abbreviated as a CA. And basically when we do encrypted connections using TLS, particularly on your web browser, when you're doing an HTTPS connection, S being for secure, what is going on behind the scenes is that your web browser is talking to the server you're going to and says, Hey, show me your ID, you know, papers, please. And under the covers, it offers up this certificate. And this certificate is kind of like a passport or a driver's license. It's, you know, these things are issued by authorities to give credentials to websites. In a lot of cases, the, the, the low level free certificates, like you can get from let's encrypt, all they really do is show that you have control over the server that owns the domain, meaning that no one else can try to impersonate you. That's that it doesn't really vouch for who you are, say that you're a good person or even that your company name is valid or whatever. All it really does is say, okay, yes, I verify that you have full control over this website. And so that, you know, you can now with this certificate claim to own you know, let's say firewalls, don't stop dragons.com. I have a certificate on my, on my website. That is really all that certificate is saying, by the way, you can look at these certificates yourself. And I actually just wrote a chapter of the book on this. If you go to the web browser and like, go to probably the left-hand side of the address bar, like on Firefox, there's a little shield symbol there. If you click on that, you can kind of drill down and eventually see their certificate and you can see who issued that certificate and some other, you know, cryptographic stuff having to do with that. So, these certificates, like I said, are basically like ID cards. Think of it like a driver's license or a passport. And those credentials are issued by a very, well, a limited set of, of people. <laughs> it should be a lot more limited than it is, but there are hundreds of certificate authorities around the planet. And so when you're in the club, when, and I, and I forget what, how this is done, like how, how you become a root CA, which is like the highest level of trust. When you become a root CA, you can now vouch for other people's certificates. And there's this whole chain of trust. So it kind of keeps going down the chain. So if, if I'm a root CA, I can issue several certificates, like let's say to Google, and then Google on can then in certain cases issue uh, certificates uh, under its 
authority, meaning that, you know, if you trust Google, then you're going to trust this. And it kind of keeps going down the chain. But as a root CA, you can also create other certificate authorities. And that's obviously extremely powerful and should be very limited. So these certificates are under a standard called X.509. And if you want to look that up on uh, Wikipedia, you can find tons of information and get all the details. But these certificates have a very standardized form and they have certain fields that they must adhere to. And, you know, there's all this cryptographic stuff built into it that basically means they can't be, they can't be forged. <laughs> but and the analogy I use in my book, it, it would, it's kind of like creating a fake ID. Actually, anybody can create a certificate, but you've got to say, who is vouching for that certificate? What is your web of trust? What is your chain of trust? And so I can generate a certificate right now, but it's just as useful as me making my own driver's license myself, like printing one up on my computer, putting my picture on it and laminating it with a laminating machine saying, Hey, this is my ID. Well, that ID is not going to get you on an airplane. It's not going to get you into a bar because the people looking at that idea, because I like, I don't trust this. I don't know where this came from. So, you know, get lost. I don't, I don't recognize the authority that made this identification badge. But let's say, however, that you worked at the local driver's license bureau, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles or whatever your, for your state, or you worked at the passport office for your country. And so you had access to these computers and these machines that create these documents. You could theoretically mint a passport or a driver's license that was, for all intents and purposes, completely valid. It was created in, by the agency that creates those credentials. It is indistinguishable from every other set of credentials made by that organization. And therefore, for all intents and purposes, it's real, even if the information that it contains is wrong. That is exactly what is going on with these certificates being issued. If a company in a position to create certificates that your web browser will trust because, oh, hey, this was created by Google or, oh, this was created by, you know, some other root CA that I trust. And I've got a list of them right here. These, these are the ones that I trust. And if that certificate was created by them or is down the chain from them, then I'm going to say, okay, I trust that. Like a bouncer at the bar saying, okay, this is obviously a North Carolina driver's license. I've seen many of them. I know what to look for. It's got all these special anti-counterfeit things that I can check. So since I believe this to be a valid driver's license, I'm going to believe that this person, regardless of the fact that they look like a two-year-old, is actually 21 years old. Now, that example was extreme. To bring up another point, there are, there are other things that can be done to flag suspicious certificates. And I think that some web browsers, Google included, and I think Firefox as well, do look at some other things and would notice when something was fishy, even for a certificate uh, that looks valid. And we need to layer on more of those kind of protections on the web. And there are some initiatives to do that. Google actually is leading the effort on a lot of those, which is great. Google's wonderful for security. They've done a lot of great work there. But this whole system, this whole certificate authority framework that we rely on without realizing it all the time uh, has holes. And what this would mean, by the way, if this trust core company is doing nefarious things. What it could, what they could be doing then is acting as a root certificate authority and creating certificates that would be trusted by anybody's web browser that are wrong. And what that would let them do is act as a man in the middle for popular websites like Google or Amazon or eBay or whatever. They could issue a certificate to a website 
such that when if they could get someone to point their browser to the wrong site, and that's another part of this thing, they would have to do a DNS hack or uh, some other proxying setup or something that would get them to route to the wrong site. Uh, when they think they're going to Google, uh, they'll go to the site and they will their web browser will look at their certificate that says, hi, this is google.com. And it would look at its list of trusted sources and say, oh, well, I trust the person who issued this. So this must really be google.com. When in fact, it wasn't. All right. Well, there you go. So <laughs> that was a little longer than I intended, but I wanted you to understand how this stuff works. All right, let's move on. This is a really interesting story from uh, Bleeping Computer. The United Kingdom's National Cybersecurity Center, or NCSC, the government agency that leads the country's cybersecurity mission, is now scanning all Internet-exposed devices hosted in the UK for vulnerabilities. The goal is to assess UK's vulnerability to cyber attacks and to help owners of Internet-connected systems understand their security posture. And this is a quote from the agency, from the NCSC, it says, quote, These activities cover any Internet-accessible system that is hosted within the UK and vulnerabilities that are common are particularly important due to their high impact. The NCSE uses the data we have collected to create an overview of the UK's exposure to vulnerabilities following their disclosure and track their remediation over time, unquote. NCSE scans are performed using tools hosted in a dedicated cloud-hosted environment from scanner.scanning.service.ncse.gov.uk. And the two IP addresses, which they give here, are 18.171.0. 7.246 and 35.177.10.231. And I'll explain why I actually read those on the air here in a minute. The agency says that all vulnerability probes are tested with its within its own environment to detect any issues before scanning the UK internet. And this is another quote from uh, Ian Levy, who's a technical director at the NCSE. Quote, We're not trying to find vulnerabilities in the UK for some other nefarious purpose. <laughs> We're beginning with simple scans and will slowly increase the complexity of the scans, explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it, unquote. Data collected from these scans includes any data sent back when connecting to services and web servers, such as the full HTTP responses, including headers. Requests are designed to harvest the minimum amount of info required to check if the scanned asset is affected by a vulnerability. If any sensitive or personal data is inadvertently collected, the NCSC says it will, quote, take steps to remove the data and prevent it from being captured again in the future, unquote. British organizations can also opt out of having their servers scanned by the government by emailing a list of IP addresses they want to be excluded at scanning at ncsc.gov.uk. In January, the cybersecurity agency also started releasing NMAP, that's N-M-A-P, and I'll talk about it in a second, uh, releasing NMAP scripting engine scripts to help defenders scan for and remediate vulnerable systems on their networks. The NCSE plans to release new NMAP scripts only for critical security vulnerabilities it believes to be at the top of the threat actors targeting lists. All right, so this covers a lot of interesting things. Uh, first of all, the reason I read those IP addresses on the air is not because uh, they would mean anything to you, but if you are in a security area and you are charged with looking at your access logs and see some really weird probes from those IP addresses, you might want to know why that is. Second, I think it's hilarious that, <laughs> that they actually went uh, out of their way to say that, you know, we're, we're only doing this to protect you. We're not doing it for any other nefarious purposes. I think that's funny because obviously they could be. This would be a great cover for doing that. But, you know, let's, let's, let's take them at the word. Also, you talked about the Nmap tool. This is a very commonly used hacking tool. I mean, it's really, it's a network security tool. Network map is what Nmap stands for, I believe. Uh, and it's for kind of scanning your network and looking for what's out there. 
And of course, that would be something that any bad guy would want to do if they've compromised a computer inside of a network somewhere. They've somehow gotten through the firewall uh, and the the router and whatever, and now they're in the system. One of the first things you're going to do is, okay, what can I see from here? What other devices are on this network that I might be able to attack? And by the way, there there is right now a publicly available search engine for the web that will help you find vulnerable systems or just expose systems uh, called Shodan. And you can look that up, S-H-O-D-A-N. It's not secret. It's something anybody can use. And, and again, the stated purpose of that tool as well is to try to find devices that are open and exposed on the internet and that might be vulnerable. Bad guys use these things all the time. So it makes sense for the good guys to use them as well and to try to preempt some of these devices from being hacked. So anyway, I, th I think this is actually a good idea. I think we should be doing more of this. Obviously, we, we have to make sure that, you know, these governments are not going to then turn into the bad guys and try to do bad things with this. But I mean, let, let's take them at their word. This is something that we should be doing. We should be actively looking for problems and fixing them ahead of time because, you know, the bad guys are already doing this. And so I think it makes sense that our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies get out there and try to get ahead of the bad guys and try to shut down some of these things before they get exploited or find the ones that have already been exploited so they can alert the owners to say, hey, this device has gone rogue. You need to fix it. All right. Two more articles here. They're both about Apple. And these will be relevant when we get to my recommendations for some of the best and worst gifts. And this first one is really short. And it's from Tom's Guide. It used to be a common maxim that Macs aren't really vulnerable to malware. While that's not true, research by Elastic Security Labs found that macOS accounts for a small 6.2% of malware infections compared to 54.4% for Windows. But there's a catch. The security firm found that nearly 50% of Mac malware comes from the Mac Keeper app. Designed to offer security-centric features such as digitally cleaning a Mac and bolstering privacy, it's actually a source for 48% of all macOS malware. Yes, that's the irony bell ringing. And here's a quote from Elastic Labs, quote, while its initial purpose is to aid macOS users, often it can be abused by adversaries since it already has extensive permissions and access to processes and files, unquote. So that's not to say MacKeeper is malicious in and of itself, but that it can be easily exploited to be used as a vehicle for malware. As our sister site Laptop Mag points out, MacKeeper doesn't have the most glowing of reputations when it comes to being safe and secure. As such, we'd advise you to avoid this app and go for more reputable third-party security tools. So two points here. First of all, Macs account for a lot less malware. I'm not sure how they got those figures. I'm not, uh, do they take into account how many fewer Mac devices there are than Windows devices, for example? I think that on desktop operating systems, Mac barely hit 10% and Windows accounts for a pretty large amount. Of course, Linux is the rest. And a lot of those are, are servers or IoT devices. So I'm not sure if those percentages took that into effect, but I do think it's really interesting that this Mac Keeper app that is supposedly a security and privacy app is itself being subverted by malware to do bad things. And this is important because, and I talk about this in the book, any application you install has bugs in it. All software has bugs in it. So the more applications you have installed, the more bugs you have that are, make you vulnerable. And often it's these security apps and that have to get all up in your computer's business. Like they really have to put tendrils out there and get full permissions and full access. 
you know, again, I, I often liken you know, some of these things to hiring a bodyguard. That bodyguard has to know everything and go everywhere you go, including go visit, visit your drug dealer and your mistress. And if they're going to protect you, they need to know everything and need to go everywhere you go. But that also puts them in a very unique position to be able to expose you and exploit you. And that's true of these applications as well. So when you're installing some of these security apps, be very, very careful uh, which ones you choose and do a lot of research to make sure that they're reputable companies and make sure that there are not problems with the software itself. There's been a lot of VPNs that have been exploited uh, and used by malware developers because they were not written well and they had security vulnerabilities of their own. And then when you can compromise them, like compromising somebody's bodyguard, let's say you could you know, extort them take their family hostage or whatever, or just offer them a lot more money than you're offering them to turn on you. It's the same kind of thing. All right, last one here, and this is a little bit longer. This is from Gizmodo. And this one, I will preface this before I even start reading it, that I'm not really as worked up about this as you might think I'd be. Uh, and I will talk about that on the, on the back end of the article. For all of Apple's talk about how private your iPhone is, the company vacuums up a lot of data about you iPhones do have a privacy setting that's supposed to turn off tracking. According to a new report by independent researchers, though, Apple collects extremely detailed information on you with its own apps even when you turn off tracking, an apparent direct contradiction of Apple's own description of how the privacy protection works. The iPhone analytics settings makes an explicit promise. Turn it off, and Apple says that it will, quote, disable the sharing of device analytics altogether, unquote. However, Tommy Misk and Talal Haj Bakri, uh, two app developers and security researchers at the company called Misk, took a look at the data collected by a number of Apple iPhone apps, the App Store, Apple Music, Apple TV, Books, and Stocks. They found the analytics control and other privacy settings had no obvious effect on Apple's data collection. The tracking remained the same whether iPhone analytics was switched on or off. The App Store appeared to harvest information about every single thing you did in real time, including what you tapped on, which apps you searched for, what ads you saw, and how long you looked at a given app and how you found it. The app sent details about you and your device as well, including ID numbers, what kind of phone you're using, your screen resolution, your keyboard languages, how you're connected to the internet, notably the kind of information commonly used for device fingerprinting. Apple did not respond to multiple requests for comment. We'll update the story with any information the company provides. And of course, I will update you when I find out as well. I'm sure they will have to, at some point, respond to this. Gizmodo requested that Misk examine a few other Apple apps for comparison. The researchers said that the health and wallet apps, for example, didn't transmit any analytics data at all, regardless of whether the iPhone analytics settings were, setting was on or off, whereas Apple Music, Apple TV, Books, the iTunes Store, and Stocks all did. Most of the apps that sent analytics data shared consistent ID numbers, which would allow Apple to track your activity across its services, the researchers found. For example, the Stocks app sent Apple your list of watched stocks, the names of stocks you viewed or searched for, and timestamps for when you did it, as well as a record of any news articles you see in the app. Keeping tabs on your behavior rubs some people the wrong way, regardless of the information in question. But this data can be sensitive. In the App Store, for example, the fact that you're looking at apps related to mental health, addiction, sexual orientation, and religion can reveal things that you might not want sent to corporate servers. It's impossible to know what Apple is doing with the data without the company's own explanation, and as is so often the case, Apple has been silent so far. It's entirely possible that Apple doesn't use the information if you turn the settings off, but that's not how the company explains what the settings do in its privacy policy. 
Privacy is one of the main issues that Apple uses to set its products apart from its competitors. It emblazoned 40-foot billboards of the iPhone with the simple slogan, Privacy, that's iPhone, and ran the ads across the world for months. But the company is slowly introducing many of the internet's privacy issues into the once sacrosanct Apple ecosystem. Apple is working hard to build an advertising empire. Apple's ad network runs on your personal information just like ones Google and Meta operate, albeit in a more reserved way. Along the way, Apple developed a very convenient definition of what privacy means that lets the company criticize its rivals' privacy practices while harvesting your data for similar purposes. Apple says that you shouldn't think of what it does as quote-unquote tracking. According to the company's website, and this is a quote from somewhere on Apple, Apple's advertising platform does not track you, meaning it does not link user or device data collected from our apps with user or device data collected from third parties for targeted advertising or advertising measurement purposes, and does not share user or device data with data brokers. That's the end of the, uh, the Apple quote. In other words, it's not tracking unless you're linking together data collected from services owned by different companies. If only one company, Apple, is collecting the data, then by Apple's definition, it's not tracking. Of course, that's different from the definition of tracking that everyone else seems to use. It's no surprise that Apple is collecting analytics information. The practice is laid out in the privacy policy, and almost every app and device you use probably uses your data for analytics. But Misk says he's stunned at the level of detail. And this is a quote from Misk, quote, I expected from a company like Apple that, be, that believes that privacy is a fundamental human right to collect more generic analytics, unquote. And then the article ends with this one line. What happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone, unless you count the mountains of information your iPhone sends to Apple. All right, so you know, I'm an Apple fanboy. I say it all the time. This article bothers me. I am very much looking forward to seeing what Apple says about this. But it also doesn't surprise me other than the fact that when you turn analytics off, you should stop sending it. I mean, it'd be one thing if when you turn that off that Apple stops using them at the server side, but it shouldn't be sending them at all. That may be a bug. That may be a mistake. Uh, we'll see what Apple says about that. Analytics is something that everybody uses and actually does have a lot of value in making things better for you. And I don't mean advertising. I mean, you know, by understanding how people traverse the app store and how people use their apps, they can make things better. You know, if they, if they find that the most common thing that people do on your app requires three to four clicks to do, then let's make that a one click operation. Let's move that very popular item to the top, make it front and center, make it easier to get to. That's the kind of thing that analytics allows developers to do. Obviously it also helps them figure out what's popular and what's not. And I just said this recently, I, really, really, really wish Apple would just forego the entire advertising thing. Like they don't need that money and it's such a slippery slope and it opens them up to rightful criticism. And it really puts them in a position where when they collect analytics data like this of using it for more nefarious purposes, including building a profile on you, something that I have railed against uh, for companies like Google and Facebook for years. We don't know that that's what they're doing with this, but even if they're not, it certainly looks fishy and Apple should just avoid that altogether. So I will be waiting to see what Apple says about this. In fact, I almost waited to talk about this until Apple responded, but this is going to come into play uh, with some of my best and worst gift recommendations, which we're going to get to here in a little bit. So I thought it only fair that I bring this up today uh, in the same episode. 
All right, so with that, that's the end of the news. Let's get to my tip of the week. And this week, it's a very special tip. It's multiple tips. This is my summary of the best and worst gifts with respect to privacy and security, of course, for 2022. Black Friday is coming up. That's kind of that's kind of where the whole crazy holidays gift buying season kicks off officially or unofficially, I guess. And so we're all going to be out there shopping for stuff. And this is the best time for me to give you some advice on what I think you should buy and what you should avoid buying. Now, I have a whole article on this. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have this waiting for you in your inbox. If you want to check my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll see it's probably the first or second article there. And I'm not going to go into everything there. I'm just going to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch and some of my top picks for the best and worst gifts. Let's, let's start with the worst. And this list has really not changed much over the years. So I'll kind of go through a little bit quickly here. But first of all, I would certainly avoid, if you can, buying somebody a smart device from a company like Amazon, Google, or Facebook. Now I realize everything I just said about Apple. And so let me address that first. And I still believe compared to Amazon, Google, and Facebook, Apple is still way better. And so if you want to have some of these types of devices, if you want some of these smart devices, if you want smart speakers, if you want a streaming box, if you want some of these other smart home features, assistants like Siri, I still believe on the whole, if you're going to do it and participate in modern society where these have become normal things that people have and expect to use and enjoy using, to be perfectly honest, that Apple is still the way to go. Are they perfect? No, they're obviously not. They have a long way to go and I will keep harping on them and to try to get them to improve. And I know that others will too. I mean, if you're going to paint yourself as a privacy company, you should expect a lot of pushback when you do anything that looks fishy, anything that might suggest a conflict of interest, which is why I think Apple needs to completely and utterly get out of advertising as a business. But despite all of that, I would still say by far, Apple is still a better choice for privacy than anything made by Amazon, Google, or Facebook. And realize that these three companies own a lot of other products that you might not know they realize. For example, Amazon owns Ring, the, the video doorbell maker, which also makes uh, webcams. They also own Blink, another company that makes security webcams. These companies own uh, the Echo products, the Nest products, Fitbit, Eero, the mesh routers, and now Roomba, unless that hasn't gone through yet. Maybe that's still awaiting approval. But Amazon is trying to buy Roomba. Facebook makes a line of products called Portal, which I heard are being discontinued and they're downsizing that they're no longer going to make those, which is great because I would never, ever, ever put a Facebook smart device in my home that had a microphone and camera in it. No way. I used to have some Amazon Echo products. I thought they were really cool. And then once uh, basically Apple came out with their products that did the same thing, albeit maybe not quite as well, like the HomePod minis. I like those a lot better, and I've replaced all of my Echo speakers with HomePod Minis or HomePods. I have also stopped using my Amazon Fire TVs. The Apple TV streaming box is every bit as good, has access to all the same applications now, thank goodness. It didn't, that wasn't always the case, but now it is. And so I have stopped using my Amazon products. They are unplugged. There are also some privacy and security services that you need to be very careful about. I personally, honestly, I would not use any third-party antivirus software. Apple Macs come with some security services built in. They don't really talk about them much, but Microsoft Windows has Windows Defender, which is a very good antivirus program. And you're already trusting Microsoft anyway. You know, so whatever data you're sharing with them, you're already sharing with them. They already own the operating system. 
So it's you know using their antivirus software is not really exposing you to any more potential invasion of privacy than just using the operating system already. And it's good. Windows Defender consistently does well in antivirus tests. It's free. It's built into the operating system. I would definitely use that over McAfee or Norton or some of these other ones. I would avoid, like the plague, any free VPNs. I've got an article about this on my website too, but the cut to the chase, the ones that I currently would recommend if you want to get somebody a subscription service to a VPN would be Mulvad, M-U-L-L-V-A-D, iVPN, just like it sounds, or Proton. Proton's got a VPN, uh, which leads me to my next thing. If you want to get somebody hooked up with a privacy-respecting email service, Proton has got a great email service. They're, they've got a low-level free tier, which is perfectly usable uh, to get you started. Startmail, Tutanota uh, are also really good. Fastmail is not quite as zealous on privacy as some of these others, but they also don't really need your data and make a point of not collecting it. Uh, you pay for that service, so they don't need to monetize you in some other way. And of course, Signal. That would be a fun thing to try to get your friends and family hooked up to over the holidays, you know, as you're meeting with family and friends and going to parties, you know, hey, what, let's try this out. This is kind of fun. You know, install Signal. Ooh, cool. Let's let's send super private messages to each other. You know, just a little fun. It's not really peer pressure. It's just, you know, trying to get people to move away from, you know, certainly regular standard SMS messaging to something that is much more private and anti-decrypted. It would be a great present that's totally free even fun that you could do with your friends and family. Sorry, I drifted there into some of my recommendations. Back to some of the the worst gifts. DNA testing kits, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, uh, even the ones that are for medical purposes. When you're giving away your DNA, first, you're giving away yourself. Your DNA literally is you. But also, you got to realize that you're giving away the DNA of your blood relatives as well. Your parents, your kids, your siblings, they all share some of your DNA as well. And that can be enough to make them discoverable by law enforcement or other people that maybe they don't want to be found by. These kits can and have revealed things that, you know, maybe were better left secret. Kids you didn't know you have, you know, adoptions that weren't known, you know, infidelities. For as cool as it is, and I'm, look, I'm a family genealogist, I get that. For as cool as it is to, to use it for that purpose, until we have regulations, at least, that say that it can't be used for any other purposes. Because, by the way, 23andMe, I think, has, has already said that they are planning to use some of this DNA information for drug research. And you would have agreed to that, I'm sure, somewhere in the terms of service when you sign up for these things. And now that information is there again. And since it's there, it's bad guys could hack it. Even if the company that you're giving that information to does not abuse that data, that doesn't mean that somebody else won't. Other things to avoid would be really cheap IoT devices from no-name or fly-by-night companies. I would absolutely avoid cheap Android phones from non-name brand companies. They have been shown in the past to come pre-loaded with maybe not malware, but certainly spyware or adware. The cheap IoT devices probably have zero security, which means that if those devices are compromised in your home network, then they can be used as a beachhead to try to compromise your other devices. So just avoid cheap devices, pay for quality, buy your stuff from companies that have reputations that they need to protect, that have a record of doing the right thing. It's not worth saving, you know, 10 bucks or 20 bucks on something when you're going to give it to somebody and then find out that later that that device was used to hack their system or mine their data. It's, it's just not worth it. And finally, 
avoid internet connected toys or any other internet connected devices that are going to go in some kid's room, especially if it's got a microphone, especially if it's got a camera on it. All right, let's get back to some of my best gifts. I already kind of mixed, muddied the waters here a little bit. Another thing you can give, you can give somebody a USB condom uh, or a data blocker cable. uh, They're called now, but USB devices have typically four wires in them, you know, two for power and two for data. And that data line can be used by nefarious charging ports. And I'm talking airports, airplanes, taxis, coffee shops, any places that have convenient USB charging ports for your device also could be used to compromise your devices. How often is that done? I don't know, but it's really easy to avoid. If you get one of these uh, data blocker cables, it basically just literally eliminates the two data wires. The only two of the four wires left are the power wires. But also, you could just give them a portable battery charger. Those are really handy to have to throw in your purse or your backpack or give them their own, you know, wall charging nugget with its own USB port on it that you can trust. For privacy, another fun gift that you can give somebody, and this is kind of bulky maybe, but paper shredders. A lot of people don't have a good cross-cutting paper shredder. And when you throw your stuff away, and at least by U.S. law, if you put something at the curb off your property, it is no longer yours, meaning that it's perfectly legal for somebody to go through your trash. So I always shred anything that has personal information on it. So paper shredder is fun. If you want to get something a little simpler, things that people throw away are just paper. You can get these really cool rolling ink stampers. If you've seen like security envelopes that have those funky patterns on them, it's basically like that, except in an ink roller. So if you've got pieces of paper you want to throw away that have personal data on it, you can actually take this roller and scrub over it with this ink stamp that puts that funky pattern on it that basically obfuscates whatever data was underneath that. Those could be pretty fun. Those are great little stocking stuffers. And of course, if you want to get somebody a hardware key, like a YubiKey or a solo key, these can be really good for people who are super uptight about their security and privacy. It's like two-factor authentication on steroids, but you've got to, you've now got to keep this key with you all the time. So whenever you want to get into a device that's protected with this as a second factor, you have to have this key with you. But for some people, you know, maybe they really want that. I would suggest, however, if you do this, get them two keys. They definitely need to have a backup in case one of those keys gets lost or maybe just for a spouse. So now two more things. One, of course, is my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, The current version that's out now, the fourth edition has 170 tips in it, lots of pictures and whatever. Uh, The fifth edition is going to have over 200 tips in it and it should be available soon. So I would probably wait for the fifth edition. I am hoping, hoping, hoping that it will be available uh, for Christmas. But if not, uh, if you go to my website uh, and start looking around for the, at the book section, I'm going to, I think I've already posted this. If not, it'll be there soon. Uh, a, a picture of the cover of the fifth edition. So what you could do if you wanted to, if the book's not ready in time, print off that picture and put that in a box or whatever, a card or something, and promise to buy it when it comes out. This is an especially great book to accompany if you're going to give someone like a, a new device, like a new phone or a new computer or something like that. It's a great companion for a gift like that. And it can also be kind of a nice reverse gift. If you think that you need the help that's in that book, but you don't think you've got the capability to do it, well, then maybe give it to, you know, your smart nephew or something and and, uh, ask them to read the book and then help you. Which leads me to my final gift suggestion. And this is something that I'm doing new this year. I've never done this before. And it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. And I really believe that we need to help each other out. that, That those of us with the superpower capabilities to understand the basics of computers and smartphones and the internet and, and can implement 
a lot of the basic tips that are in my book. And again, I like to make the analogy. It's, it's kind of like the equivalent of wearing a seatbelt or putting on sunscreen or installing a smoke detector in the real world. We've got these very basic common virtual world things that we should all be doing that are simple, that make us a lot safer. But a lot of people just don't feel up to doing those things. So I really think it's important that we help other people when we have the capability to do these things for ourselves, that we help other people do them as well. And so to that end, I have created a free downloadable PDF set of security and privacy coupons. And each of these coupons corresponds to a set of related security or privacy tasks. For example, helping somebody to get set up with a password manager or helping someone to secure their home network or helping someone to set up two-factor authentication. Those are some examples of the coupons that are in this book. And so when you download this book, there will be one page per coupon and with each coupon that you can cut out and put in someone's stocking or in a card or however you want to do it comes with a list of tasks that should be accomplished to go with that coupon. And it ranges from, you know, like three to five tasks. And if you're already well aware of, of how to do these things, then those tasks alone will allow you to get them done. However, if you happen to have a copy of my book, either the current one or the upcoming fifth edition, I have also referenced with the list of tasks, the exact tip numbers in the book that correspond to those tasks. And of course, in the book, I've got full step-by-step instructions with pictures. So the idea is that you would download this if you're a techie enough person that you can accomplish these things for yourself, and maybe you've already done so, that you can download these coupons and give this gift of security and privacy to somebody else. Give them your time, give them your attention, give them your patience and help them to protect their devices and their data. So how do you find these coupons? Well, of course, if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, I've got a recent article about this, but you can also use my little Earl shortener that I own and operate, fdsd.me. If you go to fdsd.me slash coupons, it will take you to the article that talks about this and has the download link for the PDF file. Right now, I think there's nine coupons in the book. That's version one. I probably will add more, so you might want to check back every so often. But there's nine great coupons in there right now that would be a big help to everybody. Download the coupons. There's some instructions there. When you're ready, print off the pages for the coupons you want to give. Cut out the coupons. Save the instructions for yourself. And set an appointment with your gift recipients to do those things for them. You know, Maybe you can get them, get them done while you're visiting their house. If not, you can come back later and do them. But what I was really hoping to do with this, and I'm going to have some other things like this in the future, is help each other. It's great that you're listening to this podcast. It's great that you might subscribe to my newsletter and and blog and whatever, or read my book. That's great. I'm hoping I'm reaching a lot of people that way. But if if you remember the old 80s shampoo commercial, right? You know, and they told two friends and they told two friends. We really need that magnifying effect. We need people like you listening to me right now who have some desire to be more secure and private and probably have the skills to do so to not only do it for yourself, but to get out there and help others to get this stuff done as well. So fdsd.me slash coupons will take you right to the article where you can download these love coupons for security and privacy. Great gift ideas. So there you go. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, there was your news and your tip of the week. I know we're already over time. I'm sorry. I know I'm going long this week. I apologize. I try to keep it short, uh, but I had a lot to cover. I actually cut out quite a bit to make it this short, but I've got one more thing I really want to get to, and that is a listener question. 
Again, if you want to get your questions answered, go to fdsd.me slash Q&A. There's a link in the show notes. It will tell you everything you need to know about sending in your question. And once a month, I will pull a name out of the hat uh, of the people who have submitted questions, and I will send them a free copy of my book. So bear with me just a little bit longer for the Dear Carrie question, and then we'll call it a day. All right, so this week's question is from Bruno. Uh, Bruno is from England in the UK. Uh, And Bruno asks, what is the most private iOS, meaning iPhone or iPad, Mastodon app? There are loads of Mastodon apps on the App Store, and I don't know which ones are private and secure. All right, so this is going to require a little bit of background, but Mastodon is this thing that's a, it's a federated version of Twitter, basically. So it doesn't have all the baggage that comes with Twitter in terms of you know marketing and your feed being populated by algorithms or whatever. All that stuff's gone. But crucially, it's also decentralized. It's made up of what it calls the Fediverse. It's federated. So anybody can host a Mastodon server. And these Mastodon servers all talk to each other. So if I post on one server, but I am hosted by another server, as long as I follow that person, uh, I will still get them in my, in my feed wherever I'm at. Now, there's a little more to it than that. Each of these servers actually can block and ban other ones. So if there's some real rogue server out there that's posting a lot of horrible stuff, then in the Fediverse they will kind of be shunned. And so you, you know, you might not be able to get to them unless you are a member of that said server, but it's decentralized so that, you know, you can't really deplatform somebody on Mastodon. So one weird thing about Mastodon, I'll just admit that now is, so if on Twitter, when you post something, it's called a tweet on Mastodon, when you post something, it's called a toot, which, you know, I'm sure is a reference to a large mammoth elephant like thing trumpeting on its trunk, but it's, you know, it's kind of a funny verb. Anyway, it is what it is. I've been on Mastodon for quite a while. I honestly haven't done a lot with it, but now that Twitter is kind of imploding, uh, I'm starting to use it more. If you go to my contacts page and it's under a sub menu, but if you go to my website and go to the more link and find contacts, you'll see my Mastodon contact information. If you want to follow me there and, you know, sign up for your a free Mastodon account, be patient right now. Mastodon is getting slammed because everybody is leaving Twitter and the the place that's getting all the attention right now is Mastodon. So a lot of these smaller servers are getting swamped. But coming back to Bruno's question, here is my answer, such as it is. I don't know. <laughs> it's the true answer. If you go to mastodon.social, Mastodon has its own app. I mean, by default, I would say that it's probably the safest one to go with is the one actually created by the Mastodon team. But there are many, many others. And here's really why I wanted to answer this question specifically this week. Be careful because anything like this that is super viral, anything that is really, really hot for some reason, like, you know, Bitcoin back in the day or whatever, you know, when these things pop up and all of a sudden everybody is rushing like a gold rush to something new, it is a prime target for bad guys to capitalize on this, either just to mine your data and just create these crappy apps that, you know, do nothing but take your data or even malicious apps. So just be really, really careful. There's going to be a ton of new Mastodon apps cropping up on both the Google and Apple app stores. I know it. In the meantime, if you can get by with just doing it in a web browser, just go to your Mastodon account using the web browser. That's what I do. I don't even have an app installed yet. Now, maybe I will. But for now, I just use the web app, which means in my case, going to mastodon.social, the website, because that's where I have my account. That is where my handle is registered. Um, whatever account you pick though, you can follow me. The way it works is it's, you would use my handle, you know, at firewall dragon, uh, is my, is my Mastodon handle. And then at 
the server that I'm on. And so that's how you can follow me from any other server. But Bruno, to answer your question, I, the only one that I could probably recommend without thinking about I, would be the ones that come from Mastodon themselves. There is one called Toot, uh, an app called Toot that a lot of people like. There's another one called Tusky that a lot of people like. I think that's more Android, but I would just be really, really careful. You know, so maybe to start with, I would either, again, just use the web app to access Mastodon. That is your web browser, either on your phone or on your desktop computer, or I would use the apps from Mastodon themselves. Next week is the big, colossal 300th episode with Bruce Schneier as my guest. Uh, I was going to tell you all about two new promotions I was going to be doing next week, uh, but we've totally run out of time, so I will tell you about them then. But I've got a fun new patron promotion coming up uh, on patreon.com, and I've also got a great giveaway where I'm going to give away lots of fun stuff throughout the month of December for both of those. So you'll learn all about those next week. All right, everybody, that is it. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Until next week, have a great Thanksgiving for those of you celebrating that. And as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>